Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Priscilla Gilman. She's the author of two memoirs, The Anti-Romantic Child and The Critic's Daughter, and a former professor of English literature at Yale University and Vassar College. The Anti-Romantic Child received starred reviews in Publishers Weekly and Booklist, was selected as one of the best books of 2011 by the Leonard Lopate Show and the Chicago Tribune, and was one of five nominees for a Books for a Better Life Award for Best First Book. Nick Hornby called the critic's daughter beautiful, honest, raw, careful, soulful, brave, and incredibly readable, and Kiese Lehman declared the critic's daughter is an exquisite and rare example of how the memoir needs as much inventiveness and scope and form as our most lush fiction and poetry. I've read few books in my life as skillfully executed and willfully conceived as the critic's daughter. Gilman's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Slate, Real Simple, the Washington Post, O, the Oprah Magazine, and elsewhere. She lives in New York City. Welcome, Priscilla. It's so nice to be here with you, Renita. Hi. I am so glad that you're here. And it's just lovely to know that I have this time with you because I received your books and I've been reading them and I just feel like together and individually and just this sense of life and history that you bring to the New York scene, mm. all of it is just a force. And so it's it's hard it's hard to boil your experience down, I know. But can you share just a bit about your newest book, The Critic's Daughter? Sure. So The Critic's Daughter, my father was Richard Gilman, who was a professor at the Yale School of Drama for 30 years. He was a theater critic for Newsweek and The Nation and the literary critic for The New Republic and many other places. My mother's a literary agent, Lynn Nesbitt. She's still alive. She represents everybody from Tom Wolfe to Anne Rice, Michael Crichton, Joan Didion, Jimmy Carter, Andy Sean Greer. So my book is about growing up in the 1970s and the 1980s on the Upper West Side of New York City in this very vibrant culture of actors and writers and editors and agents. And So it is a story, it is an elegy for a lost New York, a lost literary culture, a lost moment in our country when the arts were more valued and and critics in particular were extremely powerful. But it's also a very personal story. The first sentence of the book is, I lost my father for the first time when I was 10 years old. And when I was 10 years old, my mother initiated a divorce from my father and I lost my father physically. I lost him as a regular, reliable, steady presence in my life. I lost uh, my sense of my father as an innocent family man, as a lot of things were revealed to me about a kind of double life that he was leading. And so it is a grief memoir. Um, I I did lose my father to lung cancer when I was 36. So quite a long time ago. Took Mm -hmm. me a long time to be ready to write this book. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the book, you explore so much. And there's something so, I don't know, there's an academic side to the book, because I felt like I learned a lot. There's this Mm -hmm. historical side to the book, because it really does set you firmly in time in this part of New York's history that I was never part of. But even though you and I share similar eras where we grew up, that your experience was vastly different from my experience. It's fabled this, this like, (laughs) 
brilliant, artsy, sophisticated New York that you grew around, you grew up around. Also, this idea of having a critic within the house and also the juxtaposition of his warmth and caring for you and your sister and this almost idyllic life you had and the way that he paid attention to you and cared for you compared to his discerning and critical eye. Yes. Uh, Before, I mean, I know that there is this loss that you then encountered, but up until you were 10, can you recall how bifurcated that was? Did you, I know he lost his temper. You talk about that in his anger, but when you were in his orbit, when he was sort of focused on you, did you feel utterly safe? I did. I felt utterly safe, utterly seen, utterly loved. And my father was a mass of contradictions. We all are, Renee, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. he more than most. It's, it's another way in which I think about my story. Yes, you're right that it's this rarefied world. And I have to say that it didn't feel that way growing up in it. It just felt normal. And we were in a mm-hmm. rent-controlled rental apartment. My parents <laughs> paid like $150 a month. Right. Well, that's also funny, right? That's how you had to live. And yet you had all these people in your apartment. No, it's crazy. And in this building where all like Pauline Kale lived in, you know, Mm -hmm. all these luminaries, Jane Kramer from the New Yorker (laughs) lived in the building. These were my friends, their children. But, you know, it is a universal story about how we all have to confront the complexity of our parents and that our Mm -hmm. parents are people. They're not just the person who is standing in a parental relationship to us. They have a history, they have their own vulnerability, they have their own struggles. And so for me, my father was at one and the same time, this kind of critical Titan, which I knew even when I was a little child, because all of these august personages that would visit the house or these famous writers, Mm. I could tell that they respected his opinion you know, more than any other. And I I would see them groveling for his praise or asking (laughs) what his opinion was about different things. And, you know, when I was a kid, he was on the Dick Cavett show, which was sort of Mm. like the biggest show for public intellectuals (laughs) to go on. And he was on PBS. And I I just knew that he was like this very powerful figure. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he believed wholeheartedly and ardently in me and my sister as individuals, but also in what I refer to in the book as kind of the religion of childhood. He Mm. loved everything that we loved. He genuinely loved Sesame Street and Zoom. I mean, who wouldn't, Mm -hmm. Renee? But, you know, (laughs) if you don't, it's a red flag, I think. But, you know, he loved those shows and he would watch with us and we would want to turn off the TV and he wouldn't want to. You know, he would would read just endlessly to us. He's like, what do you want to read now? And when we would be playing imaginative games, he would join in the imaginative games. He would speak to our stuffed animals and our dolls as if they were real people Mm -hmm. and ask us about them. And so he was this very, and it's interesting that you said the book feels academic because I get it in one sense, but in another sense, you know, my father did not have an advanced degree, was (laughs) never on the tenure track. That's, that's wild to me, right? Because he was so learned. So learned, like completely an autodidact. I find out Mm -hmm. later that he never even graduated from college (laughs) because he went and was in the Marines in World War II and then never really returned to school to get the degree. Mm. So he, and you know, his, in his work, he was very much about, and I believe in, in the eulogy in the New York Times that Ben Brantley sorry, the obituary that he wrote, it really was so beautiful. I, I think of it as a, a eulogy. Yeah. Um, and it was on the front page of the New York Times when my father died. I mean, how far have we fallen culturally since 2006? You would never mm-hmm. have a theater critic on the front page mm. of the New York Times. 
But he wrote about how my father sort of bridged this gap between popular journalism and academic erudition because he did hmm. write for everyone. Mm-hmm. And he did not, he very much scorned kind of excessive abstract theorizing mm-hmm. and writing about literature that shut out the lay reader. He was very mm. much, and he was at one point at Yale, he taught undergraduates and he taught the most popular lecture class in the history of Yale College mm. on modern drama. And it drew hundreds and hundreds of students because he was, he spoke in a very accessible, and he mm-hmm. was very funny and very warm and very down to earth in his person. Mm-hmm. It's it's also something that I wanted to talk about because on page 27, you mentioned that your father saw his work as critic as, quote, a sacred task, mm-hmm. an act of radical honesty, unshakable integrity and impassioned advocacy. Mm-hmm. And you grew up in this environment. I'm not saying that that's how he approached you and his parenting, but I'm curious what the adult you makes of your father's approach to his work and the climate for critics now. Yes. I think it was a lot easier back then to be extremely critical of things. (laughs) I have been on a couple of theater podcasts and spoken to, there's a podcast that New York Times theater critic and the Washington Post theater critic do. That's a fantastic theater podcast. And they were saying they were just astonished by how honest he could be and how Mm -hmm. ruthless he could be. And we now feel a much greater economic pressure to put bodies in the seats and Mm -hmm. because theater is struggling so much in this country. So, you you know, it's interesting in reading my father's criticism. He was a literary critic, too. I mean, it's interesting if you look at like the paperback of Rabbit Run by John Updike or Laurie Siegel's... um, first memoir, Other People's Houses. You know, my father was one of the first people to give John Updike a rave review. He later turned against John Updike's work, mm-hmm. but he did love Robert Run. And he was so, he, he just would absolutely tell the truth about how he felt. And he mm-hmm. would not let anyone shake him. If he thought something was overhyped or a celebrity was celebrated for their acting when they really couldn't act, he would tell the truth. And I published it. I'm a critic um, Mm -hmm. myself and a book critic. And I published a review this week that I was very nervous about because it's gotten very good. This book has gotten very good reviews. And there was a lot to praise in the book, but there was also a lot that I had trouble with. And I called my mom and I was like, oh, I'm stealing. It's just, I don't don't like to hurt people. It's just hard. And my mother said, come on, your father would never (laughs) worry about that. You know, and um, and she was like, you got to channel your dad. And I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to tell the truth. And even as a little child, I felt sometimes that some of the criticisms, they they came off to me as like mean that my father Mm, was making. mm But I do believe that he and his critical compatriots, right, Anatole Briard, Christopher Lehmanhaupt, Stanley Kaufman, they're all characters in my book. Mm-hmm. They absolutely believe that what they were doing, they were, they were in a service profession and they mm-hmm. were performing a service to the reading public, the theater going public, the films. Stanley was a, a movie critic for the New Republic for many years. And that they felt that people, you can't trust people unless you know that they're going to give you their honest opinion. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? As mm-hmm. a critic. 
Right. And of course, if you were in a workshop group or you have a trusted reader, as a writer, you need that. You absolutely need that. And I think think of what I'm picking up, and tell me if this is true, that your father had the right for this opinion and to say the truth and to really explain how he felt and unabashedly absolutely rooted in his opinion, but not not so that other people couldn't also have their opinions. Is it true that he might be rooted in his opinion and know that what he believed is right, but would he then not leave room for any other critics? Was the idea you're all you are all allowed to have your opinion or I'm absolutely unequivocally right? I've never thought about it that way. I I honestly don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think he believed very much in his own take. I never saw him. I mean, I mean, I guess I guess you could say that he disagreed very much with Pauline, a lot of Pauline Kael's opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I never heard him say I'm right and they're wrong or anything like mm-hmm. that. I, I, I honestly don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 that's well, no. just not something I've ever thought about. Well, yeah. I guess because I think about it, everyone's a critic. Everyone's getting the cancel culture climate. This idea that we can all review things, right? We all, and I'm talking across the board, books, movies, food, restaurants, right? Everyone has a voice nowadays, it seems. So where does the critic fit in? That that idea of the critic as sort of dictating what was good and what was bad has shifted, perhaps. Oh, that's absolutely true. And I've I've actually said this in a number of interviews that my father would so strongly disapprove of Amazon and Goodreads reviewers. <laughs> um, I, on the other hand, I, I, I am so grateful to my Amazon and Goodreads reviewers. I treasure many of their reviews. I think they're they can be so discerning, so charming. It moves me so much, especially as a memoirist, Renee, to yeah, feel for sure. that you've helped someone, that when people write these reviews and they say, this really resonated for me as someone whose parents had a very vicious split. All of those ways that I think as a memoirist, you are really helping people to feel less alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a, a podcast about memoir. So I think I'll take this opportunity to say that both of my books although they are both of my memoirs, although they are sort of extreme versions, they are extreme versions of universal situations, right? So my first memoir, The Anti-Romantic Child, my son is autistic. He's actually didn't get the diagnosis until the book was published. So I don't use the word autism to describe him there because he didn't have the diagnosis. But no one gets the child that they expect. All of us have dreams and fantasies about parenthood that will be disappointed. All of us will face some kind of disillusionment as a parent. All of us need to learn to see our child as he or she actually is Mm -hmm. rather than what or who we want them to be, right? So Mm -hmm. that's sort of the universal message of that, how to learn to see your child truly whole against the sky. That's a line from Rilke that I quote in that book. And in this book, all of us, have someone in our life, whether it's a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a grandparent, whoever it might be, that we have this, we idealize them, we have this idyllic relationship with them, and then we have to come to terms with their humanity, mm-hmm. their flaws, mm-hmm. their limitations. And ideally, right, the anti-romantic child, the subtitle is a story of unexpected joy. Right, so it's, and I remember when I went on, I was on MSNBC with Thomas Roberts live when my book came out and he said, 
and there it was excerpted in Newsweek, Renee, and 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 as we all know, and to all of you aspiring memoirists out there, we don't pick the titles of our articles. Yeah. Uh, so you know how writers will often get like canceled or like people will get angry at them because of the title mm-hmm. of the piece or whatever. That's the that's the outlet. So Newsweek called the ex- the excerpt from the Andrew McChild Child the, the child you didn't dream of. Right. And Thomas right. Roberts said to me, "Oh, you're going to get a lot of flack for that." <laughs> and and I said, "Well, the subtitle of the book is a story of unexpected joy." And, you know, and I like the way you started this interview by putting the two books together, because I really do think that they fit together mm-hmm. in an interesting way. My father mm-hmm. was a subsidiary character in the first book. I got the most mail about him. That's interesting. I to know more about. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, OK, I'm going to go back and I'm going to write a full fledged book about him. But they're both about, you know, you know, in a way, they both have a structure of an ideal, a dream, right? Falling yeah. away from that dream, being disillusioned, losing your sense of kind of magic. And and then what is the arduous but yet joyful recovery of that feeling of love and appreciation and embracing the other person, not for them at their best or in their kind of ideal form, but for whom they, who they actually are. So I think that the, 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 they really are quite similar in that way. And it's interesting because the critic's daughter doesn't have a subtitle. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't think of one. <laughs> I couldn't think of one because I had too many different ideas. And, you know, in terms of structure, I, I structured it theatrically. I think you mentioned this in one of the emails you sent me. You know, I, I divided it into acts. And I wanted to kind of nod to theatricality as much as possible in the book. And mm-hmm. I debated, is it going to be two acts, three acts, four acts, or five acts? Four acts would be Chekhov, one of my father's most beloved writers. But I ended up with five. I did the Shakespeare thing, and I did a prologue, <laughs> and I did an epilogue because I have a lot to say. <laughs> I'm really glad you mentioned this idea of your father being intriguing to readers. And in your acknowledgments, and this is a question I wanted to ask you, a friend of yours, you mentioned urging you to write a book about your father. And now it sounds like lots of people wanted you to write a book about your father when they read your first memoir. So can you talk about that decision uh, to write this book and, and what kind of worries yeah. came up for you while it was in progress? Yeah. So the friend that I mentioned in the acknowledgments, she's actually my literary agent. She went to grad school with me at Yale and I sent her to talk to my mom and the rest is she wanted to <laughs> work in publishing and Janko and Nesbitt hired her. Her name is Tina Bennett. She's one of the biggest literary agents in the world. So we were friends before and then she represented the anti-romantic child and she knew my father. She's in The Critic's Daughter. She's the agent that he sent his work to when he was in Japan and he wanted to write a book about living in Japan with my stepmother. And she had just always wanted me to tell the story. And I was very nervous about it. I mean, writing a book about my child and my struggle and my suffering and my divorce in the first book, that was hard enough. Mm. Writing about my parents' divorce when my mother is still alive and my sister, you know, there so many characters are still alive. And it, it, it was very nerve-wracking and going back into that and putting myself in the head of nine and 10, seven, eight, nine, 10 year old me, you know, it was extremely painful and really looking honestly at what a toll that it took on me and 
uh, how hard it was for me because I think I'm somebody, I'm very positive, buoyant, optimistic person. I don't like to go back and sort of mm-hmm. quote unquote complain or, or mm-hmm. wallow in it. But I think people just urged me, they said, you know, it really is a book about the effects of divorce on children in one sense mm-hmm. and how it feels to be pulled between two parents who are warring with each other two parents that I loved dearly, both of them could see from a very young age were not meant to be married to each other Mm -hmm. and negotiating not only the complexities of the relationship between them, but also my father's vulnerability when my mother decided to end the marriage, his financial vulnerability, his emotional vulnerability, Mm -hmm. his psychological vulnerability, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, you, you described earlier the idyllic childhood feeling safe with my father. I felt safe myself. I never felt that my father was safe though. So Mm -hmm. it was sort of an interesting. Can you, can you expand on that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I've described myself in a few interviews as a recovering codependent. And what I mean by that is that from a very young age, I sensed that my father was psychologically vulnerable. He smoked heavily. And I knew from a very young age that he was an addict. This is a book about addiction. I mean, he died because of an addiction. We don't, we often don't think of cigarettes that way, Mm -hmm. but he, he was an addict and Mm -hmm. he self-medicated with cigarettes. He was prone to very dark depression. He, when he was angry, it was, he hated his anger. He would have a lot of remorse about it. And he struggled with writer's block. He couldn't write for long periods of time. My mother is in many ways his opposite. She was always extremely healthy, extremely competent, capable, moving right ahead, clip, clip, clip. I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, I'm never gonna wallow, I'm never gonna. And the dynamic between them was very much my mother sort of believing passionately in my father's brilliance, motivating him sternly encouraging or exhorting him to write, (laughs) you know, locking him in his office until he came out with pages, all of those things. And I, from a varying age, was, you know, it's interesting, Renia, I I was assigned this role and I I use that theatrical uh, image advisedly and deliberately, right? I was assigned a role that wasn't too much of a stretch because Mm -hmm. I was a very happy baby. I was the easy child. I never caused any trouble. I was very smiley. Mm-hmm. My sister was difficult. You were also the older child. Yeah. I mean, barely older, 14 mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I, I, was, I was put into that role of the much older child, which is, I, I think, very damaging for both me and my sister that she was considered the baby and she was, we were basically twins. Mm-hmm. And she's my best friend and still my best friend. And you know, I sort of drafted into that role of when I walk into a room, everybody lights up. I negotiate between people who are arguing, people who have mm-hmm. tension, all of that stuff. And I think my father relied on me and I think my mother used me mm-hmm. almost as an emotional support animal mm-hmm. for my father. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, yeah. No, I appreciate you saying that. I think I think those dynamics are alive and well, unfortunately, in lots of families. And we all have different sort of iterations of it. Yes. And we yes. see it happen all the time. I was very much the pleaser in my family and very much worried about making sure everyone was okay. 
So uh, just a smidge of what you're talking about. So what about reading that excerpt that begins on page 82? And you can, it begins with one night and it goes to midway on page 83. And you can set it up so that we all know where we are in time and what's happening. So this, oh, wow. Okay. This is, I thought my parents have split up. My mother has announced that she wants uh, what she calls a trial separation from my father, but I know that this is not a trial. This is not an experiment. They're gonna be split up. And my mother, uh, this was in October of 1980, the fall of 1980, and we go for a couple of months with my father still living in the apartment. My parents tell me, don't tell anyone, not even your grandparents, not your babysitter. We go through a Christmas where we pretend to still be a happy family in Illinois with my grandparents. And we come back to New York and my mother goes to California on business and my father is staying in the apartment briefly reinserted into daily family life. And I found a letter that my father had written to his first wife in which he, in today's parlance, we would say he expressed BDSM tendencies. He wanted to be dominated by his ex-wife. And I had gone to my mother and said, I found this letter and I didn't let my father know that I had. And she had told me, you know, I've been protecting you girls from this for years. He had hardcore pornography magazines that he was hiding in the sofa that I was always afraid you would find. And I never did any of those things that he asked his first wife to do. So this is about a week or two after the discovery of my father's letter to Esther. That's his first wife, my brother's mother. Mm -hmm. I was hanging out with my mom in her bedroom, enjoying the one-on-one time with her. Claire had gone to sleep. That's my sister. I could see that she wanted to tell me something she felt Claire shouldn't hear. So Sid, that's my nickname because I couldn't say Priscilla. I said Pisida. My mother (laughs) began slowly when I was little. You know that letter to Esther you found? Well, I want you to know something about your father. He had affairs during our marriage. I flinched as if I'd been struck but willed myself to stay still. I couldn't give him what he wanted and he went elsewhere, she said. I was able to muster a few words. What do you mean what he wanted? The things he asked Esther to do, she said. Then added more slowly, affection, love. I didn't ask her why she couldn't give him love. I didn't want to know. I think he had affairs in part because he needed more than I could give him. Some of the affairs, she told me, had been with his graduate students. His three days a week in New Haven had provided him with ample opportunity to have a secret double life. I know it sounds strange, my mother said, but the affairs were in a way a relief for me. These women took him off my hands. They gave him what I couldn't. I felt lightheaded, dizzy, nauseous, but I listened calmly and nodded appropriately. I didn't want to freak out in front of my mother, and I didn't know quite what to do with the information she was giving me. I understood why she wouldn't want to humiliate my father. I didn't understand why she could never give him love. I remember thinking, even as she ripped back the wizard's curtain, exposing the shivering fraud behind it, that I couldn't say anything terrible about my father to her because she'd jump all over it. And I didn't like the way she rolled her eyes and shuddered when she spoke about him. Even as a little girl, I didn't judge my father for what he called in faith, sex, mystery. That's his memoir that he wrote later. 
his erotic nature and proclivities. They just seemed a little silly and sad to me. But I did judge him harshly for his infidelity. My image of my father as an innocent, childlike being, honest and honorable, a family man above all else, was now shattered. Scenes went tumbling through my mind, talking to him on the phone in his hotel room on Wednesday and Thursday nights, running into his arms on the Westport train platform on Friday afternoons. Had there been someone else in that room with him? Had his halcyon weekends with me and Claire been a kind of cleansing of adultery's taint? While I'd seen other married men behave badly and overheard my parents discuss some of their friends' compulsive womanizing, my father hadn't seemed to be like those men. My father's best friends, Anatole Broyard and Stanley Kaufman, were both infamous for attempting to seduce attractive women and had made crass comments about women in my presence that my father chided them for. Harold Brodke, who dubbed himself a latter-day Byron, was sexually flirtatious with both women and men. He boasted of his conquests, and his sexual desires oozed out of him. As soon as I was a teenager, he'd leer at and ogle me. My father didn't ogle or leer at real women or at women on TV or in films, ever. He wasn't lecherous. I'd never seen him hit on a woman in the way that so many of my parents' married friends did right in front of their spouses and children. But now, images of my father with women would come to me at strange moments, distracting me in the middle of a science lab or a kickball game, knocking the breath out of me while I was singing in music class. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I, I'm I just reminded so much of maybe it was the era that this sexist, more misogynist, objectifying era that we were in. I think mm-hmm. that my father, too, this was kind of par for the course, not to the extreme that you're talking about some of his friends, your father's friends. Yes. But that idea, in fact, your dad may have been more restrained than my father. I grew up with my dad and there's a lot of like, I don't know, not leering necessarily, but just here's an opportunity. And when you're a young girl watching the world and watching how women are observed and I don't know, interacted with even on TV and on the street. I mean, it really does affect you greatly. Renee, it really does affect you greatly. And that's one of the ironies because my father had always seemed to be, uh, in the passage right after what I read, I talk about how he was a a feminist and, Mm -hmm. you know, celebrate, had all these great female friends and was an ardent supporter of women in so many ways. And so it seemed like, and I'm 10 years old also, I think I need to tell your listeners mm-hmm. when my mother mm-hmm. is telling me all this yes. and I'm just thinking but this is the last person I would expect to be doing this right like yes. all of these well men it's that also I've met in yes. and out of my apartment I would be I would believe it but well also just... what you're saying to me which is similar to what happened to me because my mom left and we were living with my dad and my dad and this is in my book but shared some stuff that no 10 year old should yeah. know about it like the boundaries and yes. I, maybe it also happens to be the way people parented back then I know we're all hopefully growing and getting better but I just think it, it's like all of a sudden you go from being a total child and enveloped it yes. seems and I'm and I'm, I'm making this a little bit of, of an extreme example but 
you're enveloped in this warm kind of childhood uh, glow and then boom you're in the real world you yes. you're there's divorce you're you're facing the parents divorce the father's sexuality the yes. reality of all the things that you were protected from and it's really it's very disturbing, right? And I hear when you're reading this excerpt and when I was reading it myself, I felt you do this great balancing act here of showing what the child you was experiencing and using the adult narrator you to get in there and to sort of excavate that a little bit, which is very useful for the reader because they kind of understand what you were experiencing in the moment, but also what the ramifications might be. Yes, exactly. That's the, that was the trickiest part of writing this. It's interesting that the, the photo on the cover of my book, mm. my sister is actually in the original, Renee, and I, I had to call her and tell <laughs> her that she was her out. chopped off. I'm sure she yeah. loved that. And at first she was sad <laughs> because it's like, it's actually her Facebook banner is that uh, picture. Yeah. But then she was like, actually, I'm kind of grateful that I'm not on your back. But, you know, that photo was taken a couple of months before my parents split up, maybe even just a month before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my my agent and my editor would say to me over and over again, look at pictures of yourself when you were nine and ten. And I had resisted seeing this for so many years, Renee, because it's so painful. And I'm very much my mother's daughter in the sense of like, don't wallow, keep moving through life, like don't Mm -hmm. feel sorry for yourself. But it was important for me to have empathy for little Priscilla. It was Mm -hmm. important Mm -hmm. for me to look at that little face and see the happiness and the peace in that face snuggled up with my father in the actual picture my arms are around my father's neck mm-hmm. you can't really see it in the version that they have on the book cover but and it was just a cozy moment where my father looks so happy and so peaceful and and my sister and I do as well but at the same time I see a little bit of hauntedness in those eyes I, I see a little bit because I as I write in the book I never felt that my parents loved each other the way they loved me and my sister, Mm -hmm. or the way I loved them. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that my father's position in the world and in the family was precarious. Mm. Yeah, kids are so perceptive. And they especially especially when you feel sort of that subtext, that stuff happening, you kind of look for more of it. And also, you were a writer, you were a baby writer. So I think (gasps) I don't, you know, I I don't know how much of this is is inherent for all children. But I really do think that hypervigilance is exacerbated when we feel the empty spaces, we feel the vacuousness of where other things are supposed to be. And then we sort of try to go on the hunt, at least I did not to make you and me the same, but you kind of Sherlock Holmes at what is Oh my God, you Eraquil Poirot and Sherlock Holmes it exactly, (laughs) exactly. You know, there's a wonderful quotation from Jane Ann Phillips, who's actually my mother's mother's client, my mother's Mm -hmm. writer. And she has a wonderful quotation about how writers as children were, and I was thinking of it as you were speaking, are a kind of spy. Yes. (laughs) And they're just attuned, like preternaturally attuned to, as you said, not just what's said, but what's unsaid, right? The spaces. And I describe that, the spaces between my parents, like the lack of attempts to bridge a kind of gap or a boundary between them. Like there's something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then speaking of boundaries, I just want to get back to a great point that you made a few minutes ago about, uh, you know, my parent finding out all this stuff and being told all these things. And there have been um, some readers and, and one reviewer in particular who really went after my mother for this. And You know, I never blamed my mother. I was never angry at my mother for telling me any of these things because 
first, it was a different era, as you said. Mm -hmm. And my parents got they split up a year after Kramer versus Kramer, right? Right. It was the beginning of the era of like everybody splitting up. Let me just say on a side <laughs> note that my father sat us down, me and my sister, and said we, we really needed to watch Kramer versus Kramer. We still think it has to do because the mom is sort of vilified in that movie and my father is a single father raising us. So, yeah. Yes. And of course, you know that I write extensively about that, yeah. about that movie and my father as as Ted Kramer. But, you know, so it was a very different era. We didn't know how to talk to children about divorce. My mother was responding to my having found this letter, right? That's what precipitated the whole thing. She was like, she's read this sexually explicit letter. She knows what's going on. And I think I presented as very calm, composed, mature, solid, invulnerable little kid. And I've been asked a lot in interviews, you know, do, were you furious at your mother and angry? And I really never have been. Mm-hmm. And I think when readers say that I seem angry or that they're angry at her, I think that's their projecting mm-hmm. their own anger onto her. And I appreciate that. I'm like, thank you for being empathetic towards little Priscilla and wanting to stand up for her and see that this was wrong. However, I think my mother did this with the best of intentions. She was not in therapy. She had no one advising her how to handle this. Yeah, yeah. And I think she was also kind of probably had been keeping this from us. I mean, can you imagine going into the living room and finding a hardcore pornography magazine under a cushion that your children have just been sitting on playing with their stuffed animals? Yeah, furious, right? Just furious, right? Yes, yes, no, of course. That's, I love, I love talking about that too, because as readers and as memoir lovers, we all bring our own experience and perspective to what we read and so that that's the other part of memoir that's so wonderful and reading in general because the reader is going to put in part of the story right so that's why you know it that that's part of why I think listening to what people think of your work is important and also you really have to take it with a giant grain of salt because it is so subjective you Um, really do Renee I think that's great advice for people who are you know, worried or nervous that however much you control it. I mean, you know, my my agent now is Eric Simonoff, and he also was at Jenko and Nesbitt working under my mom. Now he's at WME. My editor, Jill Bialoski at Norton, has done a lot of deals with my mom, right? We all love my mom. We were extremely cautious, right, about, like, we don't want people to be angry at her. And, and some people were. Right. So it's like no matter what you do, people are going to bring their own experience and their own perspective. And if somebody thinks that a working mother with a major career is abandoning their children, then they're going to read into it and say that I'm suggesting that. Whereas we had a great the ecosystem worked so well in my family until it didn't like my mother delegated. She knew my father would be a wonderful, nurturing father. She hired an incredible nanny who became like a third parent to me. My mom was out there having an amazing career, a trailblazing career, paving the way for so many other women to follow in her footsteps, training so many of the greatest literary agents of today, you know, bringing so many masterpieces of literature and into the world. And we were all incredibly proud of her. We didn't resent her for mm-hmm. being out and working, right? But then you will see reviews that will say, oh, isn't this terrible that this... 
do you think they would say that if it was a man? Who's yeah, yeah. It's no. funny. I didn't take away. I, I really didn't take that away that, oh, what's the mom doing? Why isn't mm-hmm. she with the girls? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's also because I had a dad who raised me. I don't know. So this is really, I'm really, I know we're running very short on time because I'm keeping you here, but I want to ask. Oh, I love being here. <laughs> I'm so glad you do. <laughs> me too. So how, when you're teaching and writing, do you negotiate your inner critic? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, my father is probably my inner critic in a positive sense, in the sense that I always channel my dad and his insistence on rigor, honesty, and kindness in a kind of inimitable blend. And I try to do that, you know, when I was an English professor at Yale and Vassar, I teach private writing classes. I'm also a writing coach. I do private editorial projects and I still teach literature. And I always tried, I I always felt like I was that kid, Renee, who, you know, you're getting ready to go out on a Saturday night with your friends and you're trying on clothes and you say, does this skirt look good on me? And if my friend just said, oh yeah, it looks fine. I'm like, no, no, please tell me. I actually (laughs) want to know. I'm not just saying this. And I feel that the best thing to give anyone, if you're evaluating or assessing their work is here's what's not working. It's a baseline of, I respect you. I admire you. You have talent, but let's really be rigorous. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that means tearing sentences apart, you know, jettisoning stuff that doesn't work. And I try to do that with myself too. Mm -hmm. And I'll often read my work out loud. I find that very useful. I actually narrated both of my audiobooks Mm -hmm. um, because I have a background in acting like you, you know, (laughs) and I love it. But I find that when you, especially with memoir, when you read it out loud, you really hear what's working and what's not working, where the cadences, where the pauses, well, like how to create sentences for maximum drama and effect, where to go slower, where to be faster in your language, right? And mm-hmm. so for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. I think it's one of the greatest things that my father gave me with confidence that if I really approach writing with a sense of kind of freedom and joy and and do not shy away from hmm, that word choice is not the best. It'll work out in the end. And I think, you know, when people often ask me when I speak, do I really have anything valuable to say? Right. Isn't that a question that people often ask about? Like, why should I write yes. a memoir? Yes. Constantly. Right? Yes. Constantly. It comes up all the time. And then even when you're writing your memoir, you can have you can get shaky and feel like, well, really, my story is, doesn't matter. It's not that important. I was just actually working on an article about this because it comes up so much. It comes up so much. And, you know, I've never had a moment like that. And I think, why? Why have I never had a moment like that? Because for me, writing memoir is not about dazzling or impressing or pushing myself into the spotlight and saying, and, and, and I think it's a very useful way of thinking about it. It's a way of connecting with people. And everyone's story matters. Everyone's story matters. If you're telling the truth about your experience, there will be someone else in the world and hopefully many people in the world who need to hear what you're saying because it gives them a feeling of being accompanied in their Mm -hmm. own experience. You're putting into words. I got so many letters about the anti-romantic child, like, thank you for putting into words the complicated emotions around raising a child with special needs, right? Mm -hmm. You've helped me when I go to my IEP meeting know how to advocate for my child. With this book, it's thank you for 
reminding me that it's okay to still be sad about losing my parent who died 10 years ago, that mm -hmm. you never get over it and you're not supposed to get over it. Mm -hmm. But if you write about it and you, you're bringing that person back to life in a way. And there was, there's one reader, her name is Kelly Thompson. I don't know if you know her. She's in the mm -hmm. Binders School yes. of Memoirists. She's so, she wrote me just the most beautiful things and posted incredible things about how she fell in love with the critic reading this book and just loved my father and sort of took him into her heart and felt that he was teaching her as she was reading. In other words, it wasn't just me. Yeah. It was him because he was such a magnificent teacher and also a memoirist. You know, he wrote yeah. an incredible memoir called Faith, Sex, Mystery that was on the front page of the New York Times Book Review when it came out. Again, how far have we fallen? Would a, would a memoir about a Jew becoming Catholic and falling away? I mean, I, I don't think that would happen today. But, you know, and I think, I, I want to end with this. I think this might be really useful for your listeners. Hi, listeners, by the way. This is a wonderful podcast. He, you know, he was, he wrote books about theater. He wrote a very eminent book called The Making of Modern Drama that's still used as a textbook in a lot of drama schools. He wrote a book called Decadence about the word decadence. And then he started writing this memoir and it took him seven years to do it. And he, I think it was the writing of that memoir where he finally came clean, so to speak, about his sexual makeup, which he had had a lot of shame and guilt around, about his infidelities, about being a quote unquote bad Jew, right? Mm -hmm. Leaving Judaism, never telling his parents that he had converted to Catholicism. All of these secrets, all of the shame, putting it into this memoir and having it be so rapturously received and getting all these letters from people saying, thank you for helping me in my own journey with sexuality or religion or whatever it might be. Six months after that memoir is published, he meets my, the woman who became my stepmother and he, it, she is the love of his life. Hmm. And I think he prepared himself for that. He was in a space and a state where he could meet and fall in love with and have one of the great loves I've ever known or read about with my stepmother, which is a major component of the book, a Japanese woman who specialized in Oscar Wilde, improbably perfect for my father. <laughs> but, you know, so I think mem writing memoir can open us, can heal us, can, whether or not it's published, by the way, whether or not yeah. it ends up in book form, you know, I teach writing as a form of healing. And I, I, I very much believe in it. It's so hard to get a book published these days. I mean, I'm my mother's daughter. I'll tell you, it's never been harder. Mm. She calls me constantly. Oh, my gosh, it's never publishing. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's really um, saying something. <laughs> it's really saying something, right? But there are also so many more ways to get your voice out, right? There's so many more online venues, so many more places to share your story. And I, and I think that as, you know, a memoirist who passionately believes in the worth of telling stories. I just want to thank everyone who's listening to this, who's read my books and, and responded to them, you know, with affection and, and telling me how they felt a kind of connection, because that is why I write. I am a teacher and a connector more than I consider myself a writer. I think I would say, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? I'm just putting the, and, and I consider myself an advocate for anyone with special needs, right? And for children, I've done a lot of advocacy work with children and also for literature. You know, literature, everything from Wordsworth and Jane Austen, I wrote my dissertation on them to, you know, just any person who is brave enough to put their true, their truth onto the page. And mm -hmm. I just believe in that. 
You know, I was wondering, I, I do want to, you've given such great advice here, so many wonderful quotes that I can pull. So I'm not sure if there's any further advice you'd like to offer before we end. But I also just want to ask another question about this, the critic in you mm-hmm. and how you operate. I am curious how, when you're drafting something or generating new work, how you manage that critic. Do you put her on ice or is she always there? How do you begin writing something creative without maybe looking over your own shoulder? Yeah, you know, I do a lot of writing that is just sitting down and writing. I let myself cry. I do a lot of crying when I write. I think it's useful. It it shows me that something real uh, is being tapped into and generated. And then, you know, good writing is rewriting. So, Mm -hmm. you know, my father taught me that. So I don't get too nervous about it. I know I'm going to have a lot of iterations of something. And Mm -hmm. so you don't find yourself judging yourself. Is that true? No, no, no. That's great. When the critic critic comes out, it's not judging myself so much as, ooh, this isn't working. Oh, Mm -hmm. I need to, I need to. But I find that process fun because Mm -hmm. I consider it normal, right? So if, if someone's like, oh my gosh, I wrote this and it's so bad and... I'm like, it's supposed to be bad. It's a first draft. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, great. And, and, and not it's supposed to be bad. It's supposed to be raw. It's supposed to be rough. Let's just clean it up. Let's polish it. Let's move things around, you know? Yeah, yeah. So then you're creating space and room for that to be what it is, to be not, it's unfinished, and that's what it's supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I love that. So do you have any parting words of advice for writers working on their memoirs? I think I would say that good writing takes time and life intervenes and i am not a write every day person i can go a month or two months without working on something and not to freak out if you haven't been working on something it will happen when it's meant to happen and everything you're experiencing in your daily life my mother always says you know she tells this to her writers but she also tells this to me now that she considers me a writer you know, everything is material. Nora Ephraim used to say it. Nora Ephraim was her client. You know, everything is material. So yeah. it, it might not seem like it's material, but down the road, it will end up in some way fueling your work and contributing to the voice that you put onto the page. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And are there memoirs that you admire that you'd like to mention here? Kelsey Lehman's Heavy is one of my favorite memoirs. I mean, I would say Joan Didion, my mom's client, you know, her two memoirs about family, The Year of Magical Thinking and, and Blue Nights. Recent memoirs. I love The Color of Water. It's an older memoir. James I McBride. Loved, yeah, right? yeah. I love Sidney Poitier's memoir, Measure of a Man, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And a memoir that I read recently that I really loved was Maggie Smith's Oh, memoir. Yeah. You could make this place beautiful. Yes. It's, yes. And she it was a guest so beautiful. Well. I love I love her voice and mm-hmm. her courage. Thank you. And okay, lastly, where can people find you, Priscilla? My website is PriscillaGilman.com, one Ellen Gilman. I'm on Instagram, Priscilla Gilman, Twitter, Priscilla Gilman. I have a Facebook page, Priscilla Gilman author. I was very fortunate, Renee, because HarperCollins got me on all the social media when my first book came out. And so I'm the first Priscilla Gilman, so I got it. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. really good. <laughs> that's very smart. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time and being here. I love talking with you. And I'm really excited that I get to share this conversation on Let's Talk Memoir. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you so much for all you do for writers. And I'm, it was such my honor to be on the show. I'm so excited. And thank you so much, Renee. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.